Well, good morning. My name is Brad. I'm the, uh, the pastor here at Veritas at the Tri-Village Campus. Let me go ahead and open up our sermon time in prayer, and we'll get started. Father, um, I just want to come to you and praise you for this sermon series. This sermon series of digging deep into your word, uh, of digging deep into the, the radical nature of your justice and your grace. Lord, open our eyes, open our hearts to hear from you this morning, Lord, and let us be transformed for your glory. In Christ's name, amen. So in Charles Dickens' Christmas classic, A Christmas Carol, there is a, a, a mean, miser, sinner named Ebenezer Scrooge. And in that story, I'm sure most of you all know it, but basically what happens is, is he gets visited on Christmas Eve with a, 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 a series of, of spirits, of ghosts. And the first one reveals to him um, his past, reminds him of all of the, the sinful decisions and the idols that were in his heart that led him to the destructive, hurtful life that he is now living. And, and the second spirit comes and it reveals to him basically the present and the consequence of his sin and his decisions. And, and it shows him basically, specifically how um, he's harmed and, 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 and wronged his worker, his, uh, Bob Cratchit, his, his worker and his family, and, and exposes him to the reality of, of, of Cratchit's son, Tiny Tim, who's, who's really on the, on the step of death because of the sickness and they can't afford to get treatment and care for him. And so, so Scrooge gets exposed to these, these frightening images, these horrifying realities that are a consequence of his sin. And then it all builds up to the third spirit, which is the, the spirit of, of Christmas is yet to come. And that spirit is this, this ghastly image that exposes him to these horrifying realities, terrifying things that are going to come to pass if he continues in his sin. And it's so horrifying that, that Scrooge, as he's, as he's seeing this reality, is just in tears and is shaking and is, and is cowering back, begging to be delivered from having to see this reality. He begs and begs to be spared from being exposed to what he's being shown. He just, he just is on his knees pleading that he might just look away and that he wouldn't have to see the consequences of his sin, the death that it brings about, the hurt, the pain, the isolation, the indifference, the destruction that his decisions are, are causing. Now I know it's not Christmas, but I, I'm sharing that because I believe that that's a perfect example of what we see here in the book of Nahum. What we see here is we, we dig into this book that is, is really a terrifying book that is far too intense to ever preach on Mother's Day. I'm sorry about that. It's a, it's a terrifying book where we're exposed to this frightening reality you know, we, we read chapter one, you guys remember a couple weeks ago, and, and you kind of come into this exposure of the reality of God's wrath, and you're, you're just terrified by it, and you're, you're just like, wow, all right. And you, you keep reading, you read chapter two, and you're like, my, my goodness, I, I, this, is, this, is, this is crazy, this, this is intense. And then you read chapter three, and you just want to look away, you're just like, I, I can't. I can't stomach this. This is, this is too much. This is, this is way too intense. I, I can't stand this. I, I, I need to look away. 
And so I know that, that many of us have been really struggling through this and have at times really even begged to look away from this book, have begged to, to not have to, to, to really go deep into it and see the reality that, that it, that's being proclaimed there. And that's, that's an easy temptation for us to fall into. But I really want to urge us as we start out here to believe the reality of what the Apostle Paul says when he says that all Scripture is God-breathed, that all Scripture is for our good and for God's glory. And to know that as we read, even Nahum 3, that it's for our good. And so how can good come to us from reading a book like this? Well, let me share real quickly what it's kind of done for me. And that's so often we can really think that we get the gospel. We can just so often think, I got it. You know, I, I know, I know I'm a sinner. I know I'm fallen. I know I've done things that, that aren't good. I know I don't reach that level of God's perfection. So I know, I know I need a savior. I can't get there on my own. So I know I, know I need to trust in Jesus. I know that Jesus came to, to die on the cross, to pay the, pay the debt I owed, to pay for my sins. And, and, and I know all that. And so I, I, I really, I get the gospel. I get it. I get that God had to handle the punishment for sin, that he couldn't just sweep it under the rug. And so we, we so easily think that we, that we get it. But Nahum shows us how much we don't get it. How much we don't get the gospel. And I know that because I hear from so many of you who, who know the gospel forward and backwards. Yet talk to me time and time again about how I just really have no passion for Christ. I just really have no deep down love for Jesus. I just really feel indifferent and apathetic all the time. I never really care to read my Bible. I never really care to get excited when we're singing praise. I never really care to think and to pray for my lost friends, my neighbors, my friends, my family. And so the reality is, is that we don't understand. We don't really get the gospel at a deep level. We don't see how evil our sin is and we don't get the wrath that God has for us in our rebellion. And so when we don't get that, there's certainly no way we can actually get what Jesus paid on our behalf. It won't really make any deep difference to us. And I said this a couple weeks ago, if we just think of, of Jesus, of dying to give us a little bit of a better life, a little bit of a more comfortable life, then we're really not gonna care about it. If Jesus' death just died to, to give me that kind of last little bit of a boost to live my best life now, to, to, to just be that much better, if that's, that's what his death accomplished, then it's, it doesn't really matter. But if we can start to realize the, the debt of wrath that he, he paid on our behalf, the work he did on our behalf, what he accomplished, what he suffered so that we might be adopted into the family of God, then that's gonna give us a glimpse of a reality that's actually transformational, that actually can awaken our hearts to worship and to love. If we can, if we can get a glimpse of what we were delivered from and what we were invited to, then that's what makes the true gospel, the real gospel, 
grip our hearts and transform us. So Nahum gives us a glimpse of really how revolting we should find our sin. And this is powerful because a couple of weeks ago, a young woman at Veritas was just sharing with me about how huge this book has been for her. And she was talking about how all her, her life, all her Christian life, she'd really just looked at her sin with kind of a, a little, oops, I probably shouldn't have done that. I should maybe try a bit harder next time type attitude. And so she knew it was wrong, but just her whole life was just kind of like, yeah, I, I need to try a bit better. I shouldn't have done that. And so that was the attitude that she kind of had seen her sin. But digging into Nahum showed her and exposed her the reality of how much God hates the sin that destroys us, that binds us, that wrecks our lives. And catching a glimpse of that for her, she shared, she said, you know what? If that's how God feels about my sin, then I think I need to start feeling the same way. I need to start hating it and actually start worshiping Jesus for delivering me from it. It was digging into a book on the wrath of God that's drawing her to realize the amazing grace of Christ. It's an amazing reality that we see. And so, so the powerful reality that we see in Nahum is how much God hates sin and the extent that he will go to to destroy it. And it moves us to not be in a place where we can be apathetic. And so the language here in Nahum, it isn't superlative. It's not over the top. It's not just flippantly said. It's purposeful. It's purposeful to make us very, very uncomfortable. It's purposeful language to make us disgusted so that we might have a glimpse of how God feels about our sin and so that we might desire and delight in what we have in Christ. And so how do we get there? How do we experience that reality of recognizing that the death that Christ paid delivers us so that we're actually transformed to respond so that it's no longer something we just apathetically look to and say, yeah, I'll come to church. Yeah, I'll throw a little bit of money in the offering box. Yeah, I'll, I'll come around. Christ, Christianity's kind of a nice hobby for me. I like it. But where the gospel can actually be transformational to lead us to a radical response of deep community, of transformed mission, and of impassioned worship of the gospel, of Jesus, and for the grace he's given us. And so... That's the true reality of the gospel that will transform us, that will actually lead us to the reality like, like Ebenezer Scrooge has when he's begging to look away and trying to hide and he's just having his, his face fixated on the vision, his eyes forced open. That's, that's what we're kind of going to experience here in Nahum as we see what Christ suffered in reality on our behalf so that we might experience radical grace and so let me remind us once again that looking into the wrath of God, far from demeaning God's love, actually shines a spotlight on it. It shines a spotlight on the love and the grace of God and it says, this is what grace costs. It cost the cross. The radical transforming grace of God while being completely and utterly free for us, 
that all we have to do is accept it, at the very same time, cost everything. It cost the Son of the living God to die on the cross on our behalf. And so we must be led to actually treasure the gospel by recognizing the great cost that was paid for it to be our reality. So let's look into chapter three. Let's, let's dig into this a little bit. And, and, and hopefully today we're gonna see a bit of kind of bringing together Nahum in completion, and then we're gonna bring together the whole series to, to, to kind of a, a clarity and a, and a, and a uh, conclusion, more or less. Because this sermon series has been one of the most powerful, it's probably been one of my favorite series that we've ever done. But at the same time, it's also been one of the hardest series to ever preach. Because there's really absolutely no resources on the book of Nahum. <laughs> looking for resources and sermons and books on the book of Nahum is kind of like looking for Sasquatch. <laughs> I mean, honestly, you, you kinda, you're searching, you're looking for it, and you're not really sure if it exists. But one thing you're sure of is the people that like to talk a whole lot about it are really, really weird. <laughs> and so just a quick example for that, the, um, the Gospel Coalition, which is a fantastic resource for research, to look for, for sermons and books and articles about the entirety of Scripture. If you're looking for a sermon preached on, the, on uh, 1 John, there's about 350 sermons on it. You can get a lot of good insight into to how that book's been preached. If you're looking for like Ephesians 2, there's about 240 sermons on Ephesians 2. If you're looking for Nahum 3, there's two. <laughs> there's two sermons. So, uh, so it's been a real challenge to, to really dig into that. But anyway, let's dig, let's dig into chapter 3, which starts out by escalating the language, by escalating the language of judgment that's coming on the city of Nineveh. And so we see right away in verse 1 that the city isn't even named anymore. It's simply called the bloody city. All full of lies and plunder, no end to the prey. It's acknowledging the fact that this city, like we covered last week, had spent 200 years of destroying the known world. And something's going to be helpful to read that all of the, the judgment that we see talked about in chapter 2 and chapter 3 is really God's actually speaking in a way where he's acknowledging the, the, um, the radical sin that they did on the cities they destroyed. God's actually bringing up this terrifying imagery, but it's really just a description of what Nineveh had done to the known world for about 200 years. So while we read it and, and, and we struggle to stomach it, the Ninevites would read it as basically just, oh yeah, I remember when we did all of this to every city that used to surround us. And all the cities that surrounded them would read it saying, oh, I, we very much remember when the Ninevites did this to us. And so it's just this powerful reality of, of, of what they are facing and, and what they've done to the world. And it's actually at the very height, remember, it's the, the height of the power of the Assyrian Empire, of the, of the city of Nineveh, that this is being proclaimed to them. And so read with me starting in verse 12 to see the description that Nahum gives describing the city of Nineveh, the greatest power in the world. He says, all your fortresses are like fig trees 
with first ripe figs. If shaken, they fall into the mouth of the eater. He's saying all of your great and mighty cities with their giant walls, their guarded entrances, are like a tree that's fruit is so ripe that if you bump it, they all fall to the ground. That's, that's how impressive these mighty fortresses of destruction that you've created are. They're just overripe trees. He goes on to say, behold, your troops are women in your midst. The gates of your land are wide open to your enemies. Fire has devoured your bars. He's, he's saying, all your soldiers that have marched across the known world, that have destroyed everyone, they're a bunch of sissies. And when they all run away, the only people that are gonna remain to defend the city are the women that stayed behind. He, he's calling out the most powerful nation in the world, saying you're nothing, you're weak. He goes on, calling, kind of half mocking them to get ready for what's coming. He says, draw water for the siege, strengthen your forts, go to the clay, tread the mortar, take hold of the brick mold, rebuild your walls because they're not big enough. Make them bigger. The biggest walls that were standing in the known world at the time, make them bigger. Get prepared, get ready. There will the fire devour you, the sword will cut you off. It will devour you like the locusts. Multiply yourselves like the locust. Multiply like the grasshopper. You increase your merchants more than the stars of the heavens. The locust spread its wings and flies away. Your princes are like grasshoppers, your scribes like clouds of locusts settling on the fences in the day of cold. When the sun rises, they fly away and no one knows where they are. Here he's saying, your empire had become so massive that the princes were like a swarm of locusts and grasshoppers. There were so many princes, so many nobles, so many generals and soldiers and knights that they were like an innumerable swarm of grasshoppers and locusts. You could never count them. Yet he's also doing a play of words here. He's saying, like grasshoppers and locusts, when the weather changes, they're gone. And they're gone so quick that you can't even tell that they were there. No one remembers where they were. And so this is a powerful reality that we actually see coming to, to truth is that this nation of Assyria that was the greatest power of the time that, that changed the course of history at its time was so utterly wiped off of the face of the earth that people forgot they existed and Nineveh was never again inhabited. He goes on to say, your shepherds are asleep. O king of Assyria, your nobles slumber. Your people are scattered on the mountains with none to gather them. He's saying the leaders have run away. The leaders are asleep. They don't even care to protect their sheep, to protect the people. And so they sleep as everyone is scattered through the mountains. There is no easing your hurt. Your wound is grievous. All who hear the news about you clap their hands over you. For upon whom 
has not come your unceasing evil. He's saying no one is going to be sad that you're gone. So again, we see here the cost of sin. We see an incredible language God laying out the cost of sin. What he desires to carry out to destroy sin. But that isn't all. Because remember in Jonah, we saw the first part of the sermon series, we saw the cost of grace. And in fact, the way that that Nahum ends with upon whom has not come your unceasing evil, with him basically asking, is there no end to your evil? If you remember back about two months ago when we started the book of Jonah, what was the very reason that God called Jonah to go and preach? Well, Jonah 1 verse 2, he says, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. So the constant in this entire series across both of these books is a sinful, evil city and a righteous and good God. Those are the two unchanging constants that we had across both of these storylines. And through them, we saw in Jonah that God pursues both a sinful prophet and a sinful city. Throughout this book of Jonah, where we see the cost of grace, we saw, call, we saw God call Jonah to go and preach and that Jonah rose up against God arguing against God, rising up against him and turning and running the opposite way, going to the literal ends of the earth, going to Tarshish, which was the furthest place that, that they knew existed from Palestine at that time. And he's running to the ends of the earth. God, in his incredible grace and mercy, pursues him with a storm, pursues him unrelenting, bringing a storm to wake him up, literally and figuratively, to wake him up out of his slumber, out of his rebellion, bring him to respond to his grace. And as he was thrown into the sea, God's grace continues and he provides a great fish that swallows him up in grace, swallows him up, bringing him to repentance and bringing him safely through the storm and through the sea back to dry land and back to life. And it's there that we see again God call a second time in grace saying, Jonah, arise, go and preach. And this time Jonah responds a bit reluctantly. He goes and he proclaims the gospel of of God to the Ninevites and immediately the Ninevites repent. Immediately the most sinful, evil, vile nation on earth repents and turns to God. And then Jonah, in absolute fury, because God, he accuses God of evil. He accuses God of evil for forgiving sinful people. And God, rather than again responding in wrath, gently speaks to Jonah, beckoning him back, beckoning him to recognize that God is a gracious God that desires to bring his people that he created for his glory to repentance. And so we read the book of of Jonah and we're actually frustrated by God's grace. We're actually frustrated. The whole time we're reading it, and I know this because in all the community groups I heard everybody talking about it, we're just like, won't he just get rid of Jonah? Won't he just move on? Won't he just move on to somebody else? Because Jonah is just a jerk. I can't stand him. Surely God can just move on. Or we think, won't he just, 
do some, find somebody else. And we're also frustrated by his grace on Nineveh. We think the most evil nation in the world, all they do is they say they're sorry, put on some sackcloth and ashes, and boom, it's okay. We read Jonah and we're frustrated by the radical grace of God. But then we read Nahum and we're frustrated by the radical justice of God. We read Nahum in this, this description that we find and we think, this is too much. I mean, I'm all for a just God, but this is too much. We want to just step in and be like, let's just calm down. This is too intense. And so what we see when we read the book of Jonah and the book of Nahum is that we're actually frustrated by two very different natures of God. The nature of God's grace frustrates us in Jonah. The nature of God's justice frustrates us in Nahum. And so we desperately want to ease this tension. And so what we do is we water them down. What we do is we lighten the tension. And I know this because I talk to so many people and, and, and we do this all the time. I talk to people who, who've grown up and they're really frustrated by God's grace and so they seek to, to earn their salvation. And they buy into a, a gospel of works and of legalism that if I can just do all the right religious things, then I'll be saved. And then that invites them then to be able to judge others. And then there's others who are really, really frustrated by God's justice. And so they run to a gospel of just spirituality and of free and open forgiveness. That, that, uh, maybe what you might call cheap grace. Where ultimately it just means that, that God's cool with it. God understands. He grades on a curve. I'm not that bad. And so we try and ease this tension. We try and water it down. And, and the tragedy is, is, is this, is that we have in God's justice and God's grace two radically fixed realities. Two unchanging realities. And we see in the gospel of Jesus and the cross a string that's strung between these and it causes them to hum in a perfect tune. It's like a piano string. That it's actually, it's in the tension that it's tightening that we hear the, the beauty of the song that's being strummed, that's being hit. We see that the reality of God's radical justice, his uncompromising justice is not in conflict at all with the reality of his radical and unrelenting grace. That these are two natures that we celebrate in the gospel. And so those things provoke us. And so because we can't take the extreme of the tensions, we try to lighten it. Because we can't swallow a God that's this extreme, we water him down. But God's showing us in these two books that, that we can't do that. He's showing us in the book of Jonah, in the book of Nahum, that that's not an option. You know, in the, entire, in the entire Bible, all 66 books, there's two books that end in a question. Two books in all of Scripture end with a rhetorical question where the reader is left all alone to answer. 
the books of Jonah and the books of Nahum. Both of these books actually draw us into a story, draw us into a story, and then at the last moment, leave us with a question where we then stand exposed. So let's look at this for a moment. The question of, of Nahum, the last verse, is for upon whom has not come your unceasing evil? And so we learn from the question of Nahum that we're actually more sinful than we could ever imagine. And when I read this question, I mean, my first thought was actually, I, I just thought about the city of Nineveh. And I, I, my mind went to all of the, the evil atrocities that they had committed. And so I thought, absolutely right. They're, they are evil. Their, their sin hasn't, everyone's been sinned against by them. But as I read it my, the second, the third, the fourth, the fifth time, all of a sudden my heart started to, to realize and awaken to the fact that the question for me answering this question is no. Who... Let's read it again. For upon whom has not come your unceasing evil? No one. And what I mean by that is I realized that as I was answering that question for myself, is that everyone that I've ever had a meaningful relationship with, I've sinned against. No one who has ever known me for more than a moment has ever not been sinned against by me. And I know many of you want to just jump in and say, he's being too hard on himself. He's got a self-esteem issue. He's not that bad. He's okay. I hope maybe thinking. Don't lighten the blow. Let me urge you, don't lighten the blow. Don't water this down. Don't say to yourself, no, that's too much. Because you'll destroy the gospel. This question brings us to the reality that we're much worse than we realize. And if that was the only question asked, then I think we'd have reason to despair. But it's not. So let's look at the, the question of Jonah. And the question of Jonah is in that last verse, and it says, And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left? You see, the question of Jonah is asking, can I not have grace on the most vile and evil of people? Can I not pour out my grace on anyone and everyone that I choose? The question of Jonah brings us to realize that God's grace, there is no end. It's unrelenting, it's ferocious, it's radical. And so the question of Jonah tells us that in the gospel, we're more loved and gracious than we ever dare believed. And so we see in these two questions, the gospel proclaimed and shown. We see the reality that, that Tim Keller speaks to a lot when he says that the gospel tells us that we are so much worse than we think, but so much more loved and accepted than we would ever dare imagine. That's the good news of the gospel. And so when we try and water down the gospel, we destroy it. When we try and water down God's justice and make it into something that, that's not that intense and into something that we can earn on our own, that we can celebrate, that we can ascend to, 
we destroy the work that Christ did on our behalf. And when we destroy God's grace, when we, when we lessen God's grace in a desire to receive us, then again we destroy the gospel. And we make him into a, a cold, heartless tyrant that doesn't delight in bringing those he created for his glory into his family and adopting them as his own. And so we see that there's no sin and no sinner that's too far from God to redeem. That there's no end to his mercy. And so these two questions, they draw us into the wonder of the gospel. They draw us into the reality of where we must ask, how can this be? For some of you who this is really your first time around church, I urge you to, to listen to this. And for those of you who have been around church your whole life and, and, and know the gospel story of the work that Christ did on the cross, don't ignore this. Because the reality of the fact that, that God's justice is uncompromising and his grace is unrelenting is what leads us to the cross. That God, not willing to water down his justice, sent his son to perfectly fulfill all that he required, to live an absolutely perfect life, the only life ever lived that the, that the doors of heaven should have flung wide open and welcomed in with a parade of delight. That's the life that Christ lived on our behalf. Yet, he died the death that we deserved. He paid the punishment. All that we saw described on Nineveh, he paid on our behalf when we trust in him. He took that on the cross, paying it in full, so that when we trust in him, when we're united to him in faith, we receive the fullness of his grace, the fullness of, his, of the adoption that only he deserved, the adoption as a son and daughter of God, while he was treated as an enemy. Believing that transforms everything. And it transforms everything because it saves us from believing a false gospel. And that's been the message that we've hammered over and over and over again. That's why we named the sermon series Redemption Songs. That's why we did these two books together, as intense as they were, was to show us the unrelenting reality of the gospel that's proclaimed throughout all of Scripture. And as we dig into believing that gospel, uh, there's a good image I want to give us to help us to realize what repentance looks like as we grow in this throughout our faith. Hopefully we can have it up uh, on the screen. But that as we come to Christ, is really the first moment where we realize that we as sinners, this bottom line here, that we as sinners are rebelling against a holy God. We start to be awakened to the fact that, that we deserve judgment. And yet at the same time, we're also being an awakened to the fact of God's holiness. We're made aware of God's radical holiness, his unrelenting glory. And we're awakened to the reality that I am nothing. I cannot merit this on my own. And so at first, we understand that in part. And so that's when we realize the beauty of the gospel, when we recognize and we praise God for, for the grace in Christ, and we recognize what the cross accomplished, that the cross took our sin and brought us the righteousness of God. 
But rather than just merely being a static bridge, the beauty of the Christian life is that this doesn't stop. The beauty of the Christian life is that day after day, week after week, we become more and more aware of our sin as we become more and more aware of God's holiness. So that even though we're being sanctified and being grown up in Christ, as we grow in Christ, we can actually become more aware of our rebellion and the sin we have while we become more and more aware of God's holiness. And so what does that do? It makes the cross bigger and bigger and bigger in our eyes and in our hearts. Does that make sense? And so it, this, is, this is how the, 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 the saints that, that lived their lives being transformed by the gospel the entirety of their lives could be on their deathbed claiming that they are the worst of all sinners. It's why when you read the, uh, the, the letters of Paul, he starts out by calling himself the least of all the apostles and then the worst of all believers. And then finally, at the last of his letters, he calls himself the worst of all sinners. That there's actually this trajectory of humility that we see in the gospel that brings us to a greater awareness of what Christ accomplished on our behalf. And it makes the gospel huge. It makes the cross enormous as we recognize what he bore on our behalf to bring us in the fullness of acceptance to God. And so this is what we celebrate each week. This is what we recognize when as, as this cord of the gospel is, is tightened to just strum the beautiful sound of God's glory and his grace. And so I wanna urge you to come and to, and to believe in a huge cross. To don't belittle God's grace, but recognize what Jesus accomplished on our behalf and rejoice, celebrate, make much of the cross as we see how much he made of his own holiness to die a sinner's death and to give us the righteousness of God. Let's pray. Father, we, um, I pray that the application today would just be a huge and just revived view of the cross. And Lord, that we'd recognize that as we see that, as we repent deeper, as we trust in your grace more and more, that that would be the transformation that leads to us being changed in every other aspect of our life. Where we'd cease seeking to earn our salvation by manipulating ourselves and others. Where we'd cease uh, making little of your, your glory. But we would recognize the amazing and radical loving grace that you had where you loved us so much to pay an incredible cost to make us your own. Lord, let us celebrate in that freedom that it brings. Let us love each other radically as it allows. And Lord, let us preach this gospel to a city that so desperately needs to hear something that's transformational. Jesus, we love you. We thank you for the cross. We praise you for the work you've done on our behalf. And we pray that as we celebrate communion that you would awaken our hearts to love each other with that degree of self-sacrificing humility and to exalt one another 
to, uh, to praise your glory. In Christ's name, amen.